I'm good, Karis. I am well. Um, you are a newer-ish person to me, and um, I'm so happy I got to hear you um, during um, the National Recovery Month kickoff event. And um, you just have such a fascinating story that I think needs to be heard by more and more people. So I invited you to come and chat with me so I could get to know you a little bit better. And so why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, thank you for the invite. And um, it's a pleasure to be here for sure. Soy puertorriqueño. I am from the island of Borinquen, right? Um, So Puerto Rican. And I was born in Puerto Rico. And my mom brought us to the U.S. in 1968. I was four and a half years old, almost five, moving to another country, not knowing the language, not knowing the culture, no luggage, and 1968 in the U.S. Curfew, police out, National Guard out, we're not wanted. And and so that's my introduction to the U.S., I'd like to say accurately that I was brought here against my will um, because we didn't want to come. We were forced to come because of the conditions on the ground in Puerto Rico created by this colonial relationship between the U.S. and my country. Mm-hmm. Um, give you a little bit of fast forward to today. Um, I have worked in the field of health and human services with a specific focus on issues of disparities and building equity for our folk. For the last, um, now in December, it'll be 34 years. So it's been a while. Mm. I work focusing in on issues of mental health and substance use disorder. I run a number of programs. One of them is to train Latino folks, Latinx, Hispanic folk who want to become certified or licensed in the state of Massachusetts where I live. And then we replicated that model. 100% of our staff in in that program, the instructors are master's level Latino folk, uh, Latinx folk, um, and 100% of the people in the classroom. So we cambiamos al español, we go back and forth, right? We understand the issues of culture, all of that. And we just got funding to replicate that for African-Americans. And so it's very exciting because we hired an African-American director. All of the trainers, facilitators are African-American. 100% of the people in the class are African-American. And so we address disparities in the workforce that way. That's a part in part what I'm doing. And I'm a consultant on a number of federally funded projects um, through SAMHSA. Uh, the Center for Substance Abuse Prevention and the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment. Today, I have a PhD and cert- certified licensed drug and alcohol counselor, a whole bunch of credentials after my name. And I also have a GED, and my GED I got in prison. And it was more difficult to get a GED in prison than to get a PhD out here. I am a person in long-term recovery. And what that means for me and is that I am no longer a slave to the mass incarceration system built in the U.S. I am no longer connected to that system in an oppressive way that oppresses me, my family, my community. I am no longer that. Recovery for me means liberation. But that's a little bit about me and what I do yeah. over, 
over the last, and I've been in recovery for 35 years. Wow. That is like, I'm snapping, I'm clapping, I'm thumbing up, I'm doing all of the little emoji things. I'm here for that. All of the phraseology we use these days to really say that um, that is an incredible story. And, you know, I was, was thinking, I came to the United States in 19... Oh my gosh, this sort of ages me. I'm, I'm supposed to be ageless, but I guess I'm not now. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I came, I came to the United States in 1966 or seven uh, to oh. LA, actually, mm. from uh, Bremerhaven, Germany. And why? Because my father was in the military. So the the story is very different. Yet there's something very interesting about coming into the United States during that period of time. Mm-hmm. We're 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 coming into our home country from Germany to here mm-hmm. to be met by the fire hoses, the riots, the curfews. And that's my introduction to the mm-hmm. United States. And mm-hmm. we went back to my grandmother's house in New Jersey. And my father talks about, you know, we had to use the green book, uh, which is uh, how we had to travel to, you know, on, on, uh, on the road to get there. And secondarily, when we did find a place to sleep, I was very sick. Um, I was told and, None of the hotels would take us. And one of the gas station folks said, you know, we'll help you out. You're going to have to go over here to sleep. Just trust us. You're going to have, this is the only place you're going to be able to sleep. Mm. I I don't remember where we were, but basically we ended up my first night kind of, I guess, in in the U.S. of sorts was sleeping in a brothel. Um, because that's the only place that black folk could sleep on the road. Mm. So we have these, these stories and these experiences that really shape who we are and and shape our understanding of our freedoms or lack thereof in this country. So Mm -hmm. I so appreciate you talking about recovery, meaning liberation. That's Mm -hmm. just so powerful. I've not heard it that way before. Mm -hmm. I'm going to steal it. I hope you don't (laughs) borrow it or share, you know, we're sharing it out to the world. So I hope people really hear it. Listen, it doesn't, it doesn't come from me. I borrowed it from other people, right? The people who came before me, the people who have been my mentors in my life. Something really interesting that you said about your own story sparked something in me. And I know that you have a, a, a dog, I love animals, um, but I'm scared of dogs. It doesn't matter how big or how small. And here's why I'm scared of dogs. It's connected to that immigration experience. When we got here in 1968, curfew, National Guard out, black and brown people couldn't come out after dark. And during the day, it was really, really dangerous to come out. At any rate, we lived in an apartment building where many, you know, black and brown people lived, right? And so the overpass... Um, interstate overpass was right next to our apartment building. Underneath that, it was the makeshift headquarters for police and National Guard. And if you can imagine the underpass with a fence on both sides and German shepherds tied to that fence, I'm not talking two or three, I'm talking two long lines of German shepherds. And my mom would say, you can't look out the window. But as a young boy, I had to look out the window when they tell you don't look out. So I would peek out the window. And I saw multiple times when they released those dogs and those dogs came back with men, primarily black men and Latino men with their mouths around their hands, right? Yes. And those men screaming and then police beating people up as well as the National Guard. That's what I grew up with, right? And, And so... That's my experience of like welcome to the U.S. or unwelcome to the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Those experiences live with me. I try to make sense of them. 
and I can relate to the struggles of many other people, including Native people in this country, African-American, Black folk in this country, from different parts of the country, experiencing very similar things, and how all of that trauma feeds issues of mental health, substance use disorders, and all of that. And for a lot of people, they go, ah, that's racial. That happened a very long time ago, and we shouldn't be talking about that. That's precisely why this yeah. country is in the situation where it is as it relates to race and race relations, because there's a refusal to even acknowledge and validate that some of us have experience with that, that we lived, but also there's generational trauma that is passed down from generation to generation. Right? So all of that for me is interconnected oh, yeah. in my process. I'd like to know um, more about your using your lived experiences and their mm -hmm. intersectional clearly, especially around criminal justice system mm -hmm. and um, equity. And so how um, talk a little bit more about it, exactly how you pull all of that together to inform the work that you do. So, so thank you for the question and the acknowledgement that this is something that we need to go into, right? Um, there's a lot of history around issues related to policing, what I call the criminal injustice system, not necessarily the criminal justice system. People can call it that if they want, but I, I have um, a perspective that's grounded in research data, that sort of thing. I'm sure you've heard of Michelle Alexander, her work, The New Jim Crow. So if we can take a few decades of history and put them into context, 1970, 200,000 people incarcerated in the US. Fast forward to today, 2.3 million people incarcerated. The largest prison population per capita in the world. If we add the five to six million people who are on probation, parole, house arrest, that's almost 10 million people involved in that system. It's really interesting to understand that at the federal level, 95 to 96% of all cases are pled out. At the state level, and this is data from Pew, right? This isn't made on. 95% of all cases are played out at the state level. That's due process in this country. It means that you don't go to trial. It means that if you and I were sitting in the bullpen right now, our public defender, because we're poor, the majority of people who are in prisons and jails in this country are poor people, including white poor people, right? Would come to the bullpen and say to us, they're asking for 15 years. The prosecutor's out there pissed off and they've seen your record and they're asking for 15, are you willing to take five? or they're asking for 20 years, are you willing to take 10? They're asking for five, are you willing to take two? They're asking for one, are you willing to take probation? That is a no-brainer for poor people who are sitting in a bullpen saying, I'd rather do five than 20, and then we need to go in and plead guilty to whatever the things are, right? And, and so that's, that's due process. The data says that upwards of 65% of them also have a mental health issue. Now, Substance use disorder is a mental health issue. So there you have it, right? That, that's the data. And so what has this country done in relationship to a public health issue? They have criminalized it. And not just criminalized the disorder, they have criminalized color because of the disproportionate number of men and women of color who are incarcerated in the U.S., and so that's the system that exists. And so how can we ethically and morally talk about substance use disorders if we don't talk about that context, right, in which we live? Yeah. And so for me, my work is grounded in that, is that understanding. And let me tell you, 
The people who feel really uncomfortable are the people who have perpetuated the system. That doesn't mean that there are not good people working within that system, because I know plenty of really good people who are working to provide services to change that system, that sort of thing. But I think that there's two camps. There's the camp that says we need criminal justice reform, right? And there's there's a camp of people who are saying that for different reasons, right? The budget can't support it. We can no longer do this. And that's a reason. Other people, it's because it's inhumane, right? And so I'll take whatever reasons people have if we're going to do something about it. But there's another camp. That camp says these people cannot reform themselves. This system cannot reform themselves. And if we leave it up to them, it's a perpetuation of the system. And if we're talking about accountability, then we need to think about what that looks like differently. And for me, we need to also be talking about restorative justice, right? Give you a quick example yes. and, and, and stop there because I can talk about this for, for forever, right? To oh, preach, preach, please, please, go ahead. <laughs> Decriminalization of marijuana, which I support 100%. I have marijuana charges on my record. I know most of the people that I know work with who have a criminal offender record, they have those things on their record. And so, and so what happens? There's about, well, in the state where I live, Profits from marijuana, which we have medical and recreational marijuana here, right? Approved by law. And number one, our folk, my folk, can't participate in that arena because we have criminal offender records. So other people can profit, and they're primarily white heterosexual males, right? In that business, right? Where, where now it's legal um, to do that. And the profits to the tune of upwards of a billion dollars, right? But there's a few dispensaries for that, that are owned by people of color, but that is as a huge fight with the powers that be in talking about inequities and disparities, even within the right to own. When you don't have a criminal record and you have money and you want to participate, it's very difficult, right? Imagine for, for folk who have a criminal record where the law says you can't participate. Now, nationwide, 30,000 people still serving time for the very marijuana that's now legal. And get this number, two-thirds of that 30,000 people are people of color. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Well, well, okay, I just want everybody to take a moment, do the math. Mm -hmm. Because my mind is blown. Our minds should be blown, and they should be blown in, wow, wow, is all I can say. And, um, you know, this is why I was so intrigued and moved when you spoke at um, the recovery month kickoff, because we don't talk about these things, even in the recovery and mental health um, recovery movement. A lot of times we can quote important people, MLK, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, et cetera. We can quote people and understand from a civil rights or social justice, and sometimes even from a disability rights standpoint, we can quote it, yet I don't think people are able to take the understanding and the experiences of people of color, especially, you know, to speak for the United States, and be able to have it make any meaning for what that means when, when we have that experience. Mm -hmm. um, and so... You know, um, I, I read this book and I was just blown away by this book by Jonathan Metzl called The Black Psychosis. And I use a lot of that um, as material to help people even understand the social construct of diagnoses. And it's not to say there isn't mental illness, but to um, help people understand that, um, for example, in the book, he was talking about 
the census in um, psych hospitals was uh, in the in the fifties was majority young white women who were housewives who mainly complained about just being overly stressed. I'll just put it that way. You know, mm-hmm. really kind of encapsulating his book, but mm-hmm. but basically he said, you know, they they were you know presenting with um, stress or anxiety, and and here's the height of, of pharmaceuticals now mm-hmm. for for mm-hmm. mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Women are now working, coming off of uh, various wars. Now they're actually in the workforce, but they're also still doing housewivery, wivery sort of things, you know, taking mm-hmm. care of the kids, taking care of the house. And that's the expectation for a female. Mm-hmm. So um, of course she's stressed. She's doing like 5,000 different things. Mm-hmm. But when she goes to the doctor to talk about this, now the medications are, um, uh, they're advertisers. So now we've got advertisers in the mix. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, we didn't at that time uh, do direct to consumer advertising. Advertising mm-hmm. happened in the annals of medicine, which I call the mm-hmm. annals, but that's not mm-hmm. the right <laughs> annals of medicine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so it's in the annals of medicine. And there you have a picture of a, you know, clearly a, a white woman. She's wearing an apron, her kids running around, clearly mm-hmm. playing with a lot of toys. The toys are all over the floor. You know, she's sitting there like trying to vacuum. The vacuum is all on top of her and her hands on her head as she lays back on the couch, just looking completely undone. Mm-hmm. Well, who wouldn't, she came home from work and now she's got a vacuum and take care of the kid. There, there's no man in the picture, by the way, but you know, you know, mm-hmm. she's, got a, she's got a ring on her finger, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. she's married. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm a doctor and I'm reading this and then a white woman comes into my office, what mm-hmm. just happened? Something just got supplanted in my head about how mm-hmm. to understand how to mm-hmm. diagnose this woman. And this is around the DSM one. Mm-hmm. And then you go to DSM two, which is the seventies. So what was going on in the seventies? We were just mm-hmm. talking about it. Mm-hmm. Vietnam mm-hmm. War, civil rights movement mm-hmm. um, and black men. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. What? No, no. Now schizophrenia is going to look like uh, grandiose ideology. It's going to mm-hmm. look like uh, people who think they should be one thing, but you know they're out of place. And all you know how you. I'm not a diagnostician, and I'm not going to quote what the DSM says. But actually, uh, schizophrenia paranoid type shows up in DSM two mm-hmm. in 1970 something or other, yeah. and then suddenly you see the census of the hospital shift. Mm-hmm. Mm, less white women, a heck of a lot more black men. Yeah. And of course, the, the drugs are now Haldol. Now they're kind of, you know, promoting Haldol mm-hmm. for the control of the angry and belligerent Black man. And that's yeah, exactly yeah. what the ad says. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So again, a Black man comes into your office. I'm yeah. a doctor. I'm reading kind of, oh, here's the latest medication. And you see a picture of an angry Black man, mm-hmm. fist up, burning city. And it says belligerent. Uh, okay. Control through Haldol. Yeah. What? <laughs> right? Exactly. I exactly. mean... Those are facts. Mm-hmm. Those are mm-hmm. facts, and yeah. that is the history and foundation that mm-hmm. we sit upon. So, 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 I haven't read the book that you're you're recommending, but I, I, I will. Oh, check um, it out! I, and I, I will add another one for people to consider: "Crazy Like Us." Crazy Like Us. Ethan mm-hmm. Hawke is the author. It's a mm-hmm. well-researched book, and it's around the globalization of mental health using the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, right? Where all this stuff sits in and how the US has not only done a number within the US around these things, how it has exported that, those yeah. diagnostic labels to other countries, which are connected to pharmaceuticals. So the, the book mentions an example, right? In Japan, 
there was no word for depression. Right. Depression didn't exist because there was no word for it. And, and did people experience what we today call depression? Of course they did. How did they deal with it? Yes. They dealt with it in many different ways, right? Organic ways, through community, through participation, through support and love from others, all of that stuff. Fast forward to today, billions of dollars on anti-depression medication in Japan. That's the exportation of that. Here in the what we call the U.S., we're sitting on native land, right? Native Americans didn't have a word for what we today call or term schizophrenia. What they called people who experienced that were gifted people, people special in the community that had special gifts. And so they were honored. They were at the center of things. What do we have today? People who experience schizophrenia, marginalized throughout all societies, being viewed as a problem, being viewed as a diagnosis to be fixed with medication primarily when there are many people who refuse to take medication and there's a movement afoot in relationship to that. So so it's really interesting. Now there's there's another context happening here. In this society, there's a pill for everything. If you can't sleep, we have a pill. If you sleep too much, you have a pill. If you can't go to the bathroom, if you go too much, everything is a pill, is a pill, is a pill, is a pill, is a pill. And for for many years, we're, we're, we're now beginning to embrace natural forms of healing, but we're not quite there yet. Everything is a diagnosis to be had with medications to be provided and insurances to be built and profits to be made. And we live in you know, one of a handful of developed countries that still doesn't have universal health care. So it's all about this issue of profits and who pays and who doesn't, who gets access and access and quality are two different things, right? So so that's another context in, in terms of which we're in. And as you well said, we are one of two developed countries who allows pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies to advertise directly into our house. When you and I were kids, and many people can relate to this, we got sick, we got ill, our mom, dad, or significant, right? Someone took us to the doctor, the doctor diagnosed us, they gave us medication, we didn't know what the hell it was, our parents gave it to us, we got better. Today, today, we sit in front of the TV, they tell us what the disease is, what the medication is, what to tell your doctor, how to advocate for yourself in front of your doctor, all of that. And I have doctor friends who tell me, Haned, I'm sitting there with people who are telling me that they know better than I do and that they self-diagnose themselves without having a, you know, a day in medical school. And so, so, so that's the system that has been built and, and, and it continues to be alive and well today. Let me connect that to the world of substance use disorders a system that was designed for primarily white heterosexual males. Imagine a system of treatment that has 3,000 residential beds. If you're a white heterosexual male, can you get in? The answer to that is yes. Do we have enough beds for all white heterosexual males? No, because 3,000 is not enough. Those are two different issues. And I can keep two thoughts, more than two thoughts in my head at the same time. Now, if you're a female, can you get in? The answer to that is yes, but not at the same rate as if you are a white heterosexual male. If you're a female of color, can you get in? It gets more difficult. If you're a female of color with kids, 
very, 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 very difficult. I can name a handful of programs that I know, maybe two here in Massachusetts. If you're a female of color with kids who doesn't speak English, it's impossible. Mm. It is impossible. So for us to say that the system has been built for everybody, it, no, it has not. If yeah. you're gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, plus, can, can you get in? It, it becomes even more difficult. So it depends on who you are and if you have insurance or not, that you can get into these systems. Now, even if you can get in. Getting and, in is one thing, but mm-hmm. what's in there is a completely different matter and doesn't meet our needs. And when mm-hmm. it doesn't, and then it's like, well, look at that person. Um, they're a high utilizer. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, I mm-hmm. think the system is a high effort upper, quite yeah. frankly. Yeah. And, 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 you're, needs. and you're being nice because what the system costs people like that are frequent flyers. Yes. People in denial. Yeah. Right. People who haven't been non-compliant. These people are mm-hmm. resistant. They're using the system, all of that stuff. Right. And so black Latino men have lower completion rates to those treatment programs than their white counterparts. And then we blame them for that. Blame them. That's right. right? It's it's the pointing of the finger as opposed to saying, well, the problem here is a systems issue. You see, this has to do with policies and systems, very similar to issues related to criminal justice, right? In terms of policies that created those conditions on the ground. So yes, we have this punitive approach of blaming people blaming people for for their reality. Now, I have to say this, right? Because things are moving in a better direction. So we need to understand and recognize that. Why is the question, right? 2017, right after the presidential campaign and that other president that came in, they were forced to take a look at opioid issues, but they weren't forced to take a look at it because black and brown people, they, they, they were forced to take a look at it and declare public health emergency because young, white, affluent kids from suburbs were dying. And by the way, they shouldn't be dying, right? They should not be dying. And they have a right to prevention, intervention, treatment, and recovery support. And so does everybody else, because our people have been dying for decades. And what we've gotten is prisons and jails. So let me put that into the context. Now, we're on drugs versus mm-hmm. opioid epidemic. Public exactly. Health. In terms of opioids, I'm going to go to that. Right. Because this country has a history of trying to look for magic bullets to fix things. So there's a magic bullet now for the opioid crisis. You know what it's called? Medication-assisted treatment for everybody. So you need medication. I need medication. Everybody needs medication. And most of the funding from the federal government that's coming out is coming out for medication-assisted treatment. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. There are 23 million people in the U.S. who identify as being in recovery. 20 to 25% of them did it through medication, which means that the majority didn't. And so why are we hell-bent on pushing? And by the way, the people who gave us the problem, pharmaceuticals are now giving us the solution. Isn't that really interesting? And and so, you know, take a couple of steps back. And and listen, I provide clinical supervision to a team of people who do MATMAR at a federally qualified health center. So it's not that I'm against medication-assisted treatment. I think that it works. Is it for everybody is the question. And the answer to that is no. And so what is the answer? as far as the evidence is concerned, it's called the multiple pathways of recovery. Mm -hmm. Some people do it through church, synagogue, mosque, faith-based approaches. Do they work? Yes. Are they for everybody? No. Some people do it through formal treatment. They go to residential or outpatient. Does it work? Yes. Is it for everybody? No. 
75% of people get better without treatment. So I'm sorry for you treatment folks out there who get upset, but that's the data speaking, right? Smart recovery, rational recovery, celebrate recovery, all pathways of recovery. Do they work? Yes. Are they for everybody? No. Harm reduction and recovery because dead people don't recover. Does it work? Yes, we all use harm reduction. Do you wear a seatbelt? Do you stop at a stop sign? Do you drink more water? Do you go to the gym? Do you, right? All of those things are a form of harm reduction. It gets controversial with drugs and, and sex, but is it a pathway of recovery? Of course it is. And so I am a public health person. I believe in multiple strategies over multiple domains, not one being imposed on everybody, regardless of what they want or not. It's not only that the system hasn't been built, to reach the needs of most people is that we come up with magic bullets that we think are for everybody. In, in, in the times that I came up in my recovery, it was abstinence, abstinence only for everybody, abstinence, right? You know, that's, so we have a lot of attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors around this stuff. And we need better ways of thinking that are data-driven, that are science-driven, but they're also driven by best practices, right? And they're also driven by promising practices because when we say evidence-based practices, we know that most of that evidence doesn't come from communities of color, no. right? Because we no. don't fund exactly. that and we don't evaluate that. What we do in those communities is we blame and point fingers. And so this whole idea of where we're headed needs to be grounded in that reality. And for people who say, well, we have the data that says that MAT and MAR works. And I go, yes, and good for you. But let's stop right there. The reality is, is that there's a medication involved, which means that the FDA is involved, which means that there are doctors involved, which means that they have to collect data and they have to report on that data. So no wonder you have really good data. Yeah. Now, do you have data for 12-step fellowships who've helped millions of people all over the world? No, because those fellowships are not evaluated, we right? We don't collect right. that. Do you have right. data for freight-based initiative? No, because we don't fund that. Right? Do you have data for other pathways, exercise and recovery, harm reduction? We have data for, for harm reduction that it works, right? But do we have the same level of data collection for other pathways? We don't. So slow your roll with, we have the data for MAT and that's why we think it's the best. No, you have the data because of what is currently happening. And I encourage people to do this because I think that this is my role. This is our collective role. Let's take a page out of the restaurants in this country. When you, when you and I walk into the next restaurant, they're going to say, wait to be seated. We're seated. You want something to drink? And then they bring the almighty menu. And they say, what do you want? They don't say you're having hot dogs, whether you like it or not. And if we're talking about that, my recovery is my recovery and yours is yours. And that we should put choices in front of people, then we should put choices in front of people. And we should allow them to select the choices. And our first question should not be, do you have insurance? Yes. And then we can fit you into our model, right? right, right. Because that's the assessment question. We go around talking about assessments, but our assessments are around, can you pay for okay. this? Right. right. Can you pay, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about what is your need? What is your level of need? What is your interest? And what are you willing to do? When we put options in front of people and they can select whatever they want to do, our role should be to help people get access, meaningful access with quality of care to those pathways. And our role should be to 
support them. Now, if you can't support something like harm reduction, get the hell out of the way. Don't be an obstructionist mm -hmm. and try to tell people you shouldn't do that. Mm. Don't tell people mm -hmm. you shouldn't go to church if that's what they want to do. I mean, they should be able to do that, right? Like I believed early on in my recovery, my pathway was the best one, right? And that's what I told everybody. How many mistakes did I make with that level of attitude, right? Yeah. And so to this recovery movement that we're calling a recovery movement, that needs scrutiny as well. Wow. Because where are the resources going? Where are they not going? And how are communities of color who have recovery movements within them and recovery structures within them? We're not here broken so that you can come and fix us. You know, we have resiliency, we have knowledge, we have thoughts, we have a lot of strengths. How are we being respected, honored at tables where decisions are yes. being made about us without us? Yes. And we should we should go and continue our advocacy on the shoulders of people who came before us, including many of the leaders that you mentioned the civil rights movement, the Indian rights movement, the Chicano movement, all of these movements across the country. What is our responsibility to continue to push that forward? Because nothing is going to be handed to us. It never has been. And that's not what we want. We're not looking for handouts. I'm not looking for handouts. I'm looking for respect and dignity. Yeah. Treat me with respect and dignity and we will go somewhere. Yes. Don't treat me like you need to come and save me. I don't need your saving. No one needs that. Yeah. What we need is dignity and respect. You, you treat me with dignity and respect. Treat our families, our communities with dignity and respect. And then we can talk. Right. Then we can talk and we can share with you our strengths and what we've done and what we think. Yes. And hopefully that moves the needle forward. Now, is some of that happening? Yes. I don't want to minimize that some of that is not happening. There's a lot of spaces and places where that is. But when we look at the recovery movement as a whole, and the substance use disorder and mental health treatment as a whole, we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah, We, we have tons of work to do, and we're responsible for pushing that agenda. I, I was saying yesterday to a colleague and friend that I am privileged because I get to live in this historical moment where we can continue to make those contributions, learning from people who came before us, and getting out of the way so that younger people Yes. can take the reins because I have full faith in younger people. They they have special ways of doing things and looking at things yeah. where the clutter of a lot of difficulties um, doesn't get in the way, right? They're, they're, they're not thinking about this is impossible to do or they're not necessarily thinking about themselves. I mean, take a look at Black Lives Matter over the summer of 2020, right? all of those young people who came together, but Dr. Dr. King was in his thirties and twenties. I mean, yeah. come on. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Don Pedro Alviso Campo, Lolita Lebron, those, those folk were young, <laughs> were young when they right. were in the middle of it. And we shouldn't be scared of young people. And we shouldn't be scared of their innovation, of their thought, of their passion, of their, their, their idealism, which has become like sort of a bad word. We, we should make spaces for those folks as well. I say that as a 57-year-old Puerto Rican man. Right? Wow. I say that as yeah. that, right? Yeah. Because I need, I need, yes. Haner needs to make spaces and places for those folks. Because I know what it meant to be at tables when I was 22. Right. right. Very early recovery. And people gave me an opportunity. Right. Right. And each people one, believed one, in me. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. People believed in me more than what I believed in myself. Yeah. That's what I need to do. 
and and I need to bring people to that table and I need to shut up. Y, y escuchar, ¿verdad? Y escuchar. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. que bueno. So this is exactly what unapologetically black unicorns is about. This is mm-hmm. exactly why you are yourself an unapologetically black unicorn. You're mm-hmm. telling it like it is. You're giving us um, all of the different intersections, all of the history, all of the context to help inform how we can move forward so that we can put what we need on the menu um, mm-hmm. so that we have choices for this, these various paths to recover mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you, Janer, so, so much um, for uh, joining me today. This has been an invigorating conversation. Muchas gracias, And to the people listening, a las personas que están escuchando, listen, thank you for, for tuning in. I'm humbled at the invitation. I've been called a lot of things, but never a unicorn. But I embrace it. And, and thank you for the opportunity to share with you, to get to know you a little bit better and to share some information with people out there. And um, I look forward to the next round of conversations and work on the ground. So thank you. Muchas gracias. Okay. Okay. There's going to be more to come. Thank you. Thank you so much.